Welcome to the WNCA Podcast. This is your host, Jack Gaines. WNCA is a product of the Civil Affairs Association and brings in people who are current or former military, diplomats, development officers, and field agents to discuss their experiences on ground with the partner nation's people and leadership. Our goal is to inspire anyone interested in working the last three feet of foreign relations. To contact the show, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com or look us up on the Civil Affairs Association website at www.civilaffairsassoc.org. I'll have those in the show notes. And a quick shout out to LC38 Brand. They're offering 10% off for 1CA podcast fans. The promo code is 1CA10. LC38 Brand has a little bit of everything for the international adventurer. So check out their website at lc38brand.com. I'll have the promo code and the address in the show notes. Hi, everyone. I'm Mariah Yeager, your host for today's SMA speaker session entitled China's Three Roads to Controlling Taiwan. Recently, I organized a panel discussion on Taiwan with the Joint Staff SMA Program, or Strategic Multilayer Assessment, which is kind of like a DOD think tank. They bring in people to present on their work. And I had reached out to Dan Blumenthal and Fred Kagan from the American Enterprise Institute and thought it would be a good deal to also include SMA. So, Mariah is running the SMA portion, and I'm guiding the discussion. This is the second half of a two-part episode. If you have not heard the first half, I recommend going back and listening to it. But either way, enjoy. It can help drive a conversation, and I think that that's a very important and useful role that DoD uh, can play. We've already been speaking for a long time, and I do want to get to questions, so I, I will stop there. Well, the first thing I wanted to confirm when you're talking about civilian agencies that are the leader. Are you talking about U.S. Agency for Global Media as well as the Global Engagement Center over at the State Department? No, I'm talking about the White House. I'm talking about the National Security Council. I'm talking about the State Department. I'm I'm not talking about small interagency coordination. What I'm saying is that just as we need to have a national strategy for deterring and defeating a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, so we also need to have a national strategy coordinated to cabinet levels and in the White House for deterring and defeating a Chinese cognitive warfare campaign to take Taiwan. Right. Now, one of the greatest challenges I've seen with NSC-led campaigns is getting that cabinet-level structure down to the agency so that they can apply it. Do you recommend like a portfolio manager within the NSC, kind of like what the GEC did with the counter-ISIS campaign? You know, to where you have one person as the lead, then, you know, work through and across the agencies for running this campaign and actually being successful. Or do you think the China House would be the clearing center for multi-agency messaging and influence? You're way ahead of me, Jack. I, I don't think that, that the American national security community writ large has yet made the cognitive turn that we need to make to understand the full scope of the cognitive challenge that we face here. And so before we talk about what specific coordinating bodies should have responsibility for what, I think that it's, it is important for the entire national security community to engage in the larger conversation that we're trying to tee up here about what is the full dimensionality of the Chinese threat to Taiwan and to our interest in Asia? And what should our general strategic approach be? Because you can have coordinating agencies, but everybody's fundamentally got to understand the problem in the same way. And everyone has to accept that there is a general solution to the problem that we're going to pursue. And we're, we're so far away from that. I'm not ready to talk about what the coordinating agency should be. Okay. Because right now it sounds like happy hour and a loud bar. 
because you had FBI and all the other law enforcement yeah. agencies going out and doing their messaging on the rule of law aspects. And then you have DOD doing ours and state doing theirs. And it's confused. I think that's one of the issues we have is that we don't have a consistent messaging practice going on. And so it allows China to be more you know, formal and focused because it bypasses the, the mixed rhetoric that comes out of the U.S. Yeah, I agree with you. And, but I think, I think the issue there is that we, the U.S., haven't realized how holistic is the Chinese campaign that we're facing. Right, which is and, the beauty of it. Yeah, that's the whole beauty of the campaign. And one of the big reasons why we will be laying out in a lot of detail what a Chinese sort of war coercion campaign would be is exactly to show exactly how many disparate elements the Chinese would bring to bear in ways that look like they have nothing whatever to do with a short of war coercion campaign that seem to be, have just be completely unrelated, but in fact will be part of it. We feel like we need to show what the coherence of a complex and sophisticated PRC campaign would be so that we can make an argument that we need to address this as a thing and not as one-off individual problems, which is what our natural inclination is. Okay, Dan, any thought on that? Yeah, I mean, if you think about the playbook, which I watched and tried to do more than watch very carefully with the South China Sea, there was lawfare. So the United States should have and didn't respond on ground that it's very good at, which is legal ground, saying, no, I'm sorry, The Hague has spoken and, you know, we're going to arrange a diplomatic and legal communique with all nations of the world who care about maritime security and maritime good order and push back against these legal claims. There was civilian Coast Guard and still are working in the fisheries and, and forth of a lot of these nations. There were global responses where people can be convoyed to their fisheries and explore their oil. In other words, we have to lay out each part of the problem before we get to which agency is in charge. And some of the things I just mentioned are now happening on Taiwan. So the erosion of maritime sovereignty the dredging around the offshore islands, the playing around, we all know about the air incursions, but and then in, in the information space and so forth. And all of this has to be first identified and taken seriously as, wait a second, this is the Chinese strategy. This isn't a prelude to something else. This is the long-term Chinese strategy. The long-term Chinese strategy, the playbook they run, is the slow and steady erosion of a nation's sovereignty and rights. Right the notion of how do we forward into that response. We can't wait all day to happen sooner or later, or else we will find ourselves in a weaker position internationally. Okay, Maria. All right, thank you. We have a handful of questions in the chats. Um, so everyone, please continue to send them, and we will try to get them um, addressed here in the next uh, 15 -ish minutes. All right. First, I'd like to pose a question from uh, Dan Flynn. Um, he says, and I believe this is Dan, um, you mentioned that the PRC would escalate its current coercion campaign as it was getting closer to considering an invasion of Taiwan. Can you provide examples of what types of PRC coercion actions you would expect to see if the PRC escalated its campaign? What we're first looking at in some degree of detail is what a four to five year escalated coercive campaign would look like. The kinds of activities that we will see in that campaign, if I'm answering the question correctly, would be a lot more interference in Taiwan's economic well-being, a lot more things like civilian inspections of vessels on a regular basis, a lot more activities 
that make the Taiwan political leadership want the U.S. to have a more robust response, but the U.S. leadership saying, well, we're not responding because we don't see the invasion. We think that that's the space in which the Chinese will operate over the next four to five years. What I meant about an invasion is that that's what we'll look at in, in our next phase of our work. Obviously, if the coercion campaign is if it's not working, if the United States gets its act together and has a you know, holistic strategy to defeat a comprehensive coercion campaign, then what could happen is the Chinese decide to escalate to an invasion, and we have to be ready for that. I think the indicators and warnings for that are more obvious than the indicators and warnings for an escalated coercive campaign. I'd like to follow up on that because Dan and I have been having a bunch of good and distressing conversations with the team on the question of indications and warnings. With the example very bright in our minds of the Israeli experience of 1973 and the conclusions that the Agronaut Commission came to, which was the Israeli Knesset Commission that examined and held accountable of the errors uh, in Israeli intelligence then. And a lot of it had to do with the INW, and a lot of it had to do with the indicators and warnings based on the fact that the Israeli intelligence community, according to the Argonaut Commission, had come to what it called the concepcion, a vision and a general agreement about what was going to happen. And that if the Egyptians were going to do anything, they were going to invade to seize the entire Sinai Peninsula. And therefore, they crafted indicators and warnings that they would have expected to see if the Egyptians were preparing to do that. But that isn't what the Egyptians were actually preparing to do. The Egyptians were preparing a much more limited campaign for more limited objectives, and it never met the threshold of the indicators and warnings that the Israelis were looking for. And one of the reasons the Egyptians were able to surprise Israel, even though they'd actually been visibly preparing right under the Israelis' noses for exactly the invasion they conducted for several years. So what we're concerned about here is that the fixation with the potential for an invasion of Taiwan, and again, we don't need to dismiss that or in any way belittle the importance of watching for indicators of that, deterring it, and being prepared to defeat it. It's absolutely essential. But our concern is that it is so much more relatively straightforward to develop indicators and warnings for that. And that is a scenario that is so scary to us that we could easily miss indicators and warnings of escalations of cognitive warfare campaigns, of coercion campaigns short of war, because a lot of those indicators are not going to be about looking for Chinese brigades boarding ships or various other more obvious and easy to see indicators. They're going to be in the cognitive domain. They're going to be informational. They're going to be diplomatic. They're going to be economic. And in a lot of respects, they're going to be things that are designed to fall below the radar, designed to not to look like they're part of a cognitive warfare campaign. And that's the other reason why we think it's so important to lay out coherently what such a campaign might look like so that we can extract from that what kinds of indicators and warnings we should actually be looking for to see if the Chinese actually are escalating along that campaign. And then, of course, we need to have, Jack, you're absolutely right, we need to have a coherent strategic response to this, and we need to know what we're going to do when we have certain indicators trip that they are moving to the next step. Fred, one thing that crossed my mind is some examples of a cognitive style of success would be like working through the campaign process to get an election that is pro-PRC. Or another one would be possibly economic, right? Where they, and, and I've seen some stoppages on this type of process where they encroach with businesses to start buying up enough of the Taiwanese companies to where 
they have some sort of leverage and control. Is there any other aspects that you are thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I think in general terms, Dan rightly said, look, we've identified two fundamental centers of gravity that we think that Chinese are likely to have identified from the standpoint of a shorter war coercion campaign. One is the will of the Taiwanese people to resist, and the other is the Taiwan-U.S. relationship. If they could break either one of those, they probably can win. So how do you go about breaking those? Well, we talk about a persuasion campaign, but we don't imagine that the Chinese are going to sell the Taiwanese on the virtues of unification. What the Chinese would be trying to do would be to persuade the Taiwanese that they are doomed if they do anything other than follow the desired PRC course of action. So then if you start asking questions, well, what could the Chinese do to make the Taiwanese feel pain and make them feel hopeless and make them feel doomed? You have a wide array of activities. As Dan has been continually pointing out very sagely, Taiwan enjoys a very high standard of living. There is a lot that the Chinese could do to lower that. And that sounds very much like a first world problem. But if what you're trying to do is operate in a cognitive domain and make the Taiwanese people feel like their future is very dark and dim unless they concede in some way, then there's a whole lot of little things that the Chinese can do to bring that about. And those little things can actually be very challenging for us to engage, um, first of all, even to recognize, but then to engage with. So there's a lot of economic activity, as Dan described, that doesn't need to be coercive formally, that can be lawfare of different sorts. And then there's a lot of informational uh, work that can be done there. And then there's a whole bunch of other things. We will unveil, and if, if you want, we'll come back after we call this next one and, and, and go through that in more detail because we're still wargaming a bunch of different things that we think the Chinese actually could do here that would not look like even the Chinese doing them in some respects. Some of them would actually be deniable, plausibly or implausibly, but all of them would be part of creating a cognitive sense of doom on the one hand, if the Taiwanese continue in a direction the Chinese don't like, with hope on the other hand that the Taiwanese will just surrender some little bit of their sovereignty. And that, we think, is what the art of this cognitive campaign would be. All right. Thank you. There is a question in the chats where Trao Griffin mentions the new map released by China's Ministry of Natural Resources, where it looks like they're asserting territorial complaints beyond the nine-dash map. And so is China testing the waters, is engaging in salami oh, slicing? <laughs> yes, China's always testing the waters. So Chinese grand strategy is comprehensive coercion. And maybe with additional strategic gaslighting, just to kind of coin a phrase. So there's always, you know, if you think about, and this also goes back to Jack's question, if you think about other things that China can do, not just to Taiwan, but has been doing to South China Sea countries, this idea of malign influence and infiltration in Taiwan in the last couple of years that I've gone there, I've gone there many times in the last 20 years, but in the last couple of years that I've gone there, you're starting to feel more of a sense of siege. You know, the, the PLA is present around Taiwan, uh, you know, in terms of its ship movements and its its air movements. But there's all sorts of things you can do inside Taiwan to, to give them a sense that they've been infiltrated. You know, a lot of the high-profile espionage cases, for, and I know I'm not directly answering your question, but I'm indirectly answer, answering your question because this is the game that's always played, which is, we can always escalate and go further, and our escalation doesn't have to be military. 
know, our escalation could be that we're now claiming the Ryukyu Islands, and now we're going to engage in political warfare and organize protests against the Japanese in Okinawa. And the opponent of this kind of gaslighting campaign, of this kind of cognitive campaign, is always sort of on guard as to what's coming next. Is it going to be in the political realm? Is it going to be in the informational realm? Is it going to be, you know, that we're somehow, you know, just the feeling in the United States when there's a massive cyber attack and OMB has been infiltrated or Equifax, is, you know, the feeling of vulnerability, the feeling of, you know, nothing is nothing is safe. There's not integrity to our systems. That's the feeling that they're trying to catalyze in these psychological campaigns and in these in cognitive campaigns. So you think, think about an island like Taiwan and how much you can play with there if you're a Chinese strategic planner. It's quite a lot. All right, thank you. In the article, mentioned several instances in which U.S. or Taiwan made concessions and China even still responded as the victim. So with that, I want to go to Gary Lehman's question, who asked, how can the DOD do a better job designing and preparing the force for countering the CCP's coercion and persuasion efforts? The first thing is we need to recognize them for what they are, and we need to see them holistically. And we need to think about our own messaging as well and how that plays into things. Let me give you an example not from this theater. The DOD, in my view, has fallen into a bad habit in response to Russian and Iranian activities in the Middle East. When the Russians buzz our drones over Syria and try to disrupt their operations, we always say Russians are behaving in an unprofessional and unsafe manner because that's the line that we adopted because we we are in a non-escalatory mode. The thing is, it's actually not unprofessional. It's a very professional act of aggression. That's why they do it. It's not like they're not flying well. They're flying perfectly well for given what they're trying to do. By continuing to say that in that region, we are saying we are refusing to acknowledge that they are in fact engaged in aggressive activities against us. And we don't want to say that because then we have in our own minds that there's some therefore cause that we don't like, which is that we would have to engage in some kinetic, which is not true. It's perfectly possible and, in fact, important in my judgment to say adversary X is engaging in acts of aggression against us or our partners. We will take advice of ourselves about what our best interests call for in response to those acts of aggression, period. But it is very important for us not to be so concerned in our minds that if we say certain things, there are obvious consequences that we don't like about them, that we, in fact, keep backing away from things that it's important to call out and say, no, 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 actually, this is an act of aggression. The violation of an ADIZ is an aggressive act, not an act of war, but it is an aggressive act. We need to call that out. And so I think even within DOD, there are things that we can be doing to reflect on our own messaging, which is always very internally focused, which is, which is natural. But we need to find, I think, a better balance between the messaging to our own people, which, of course, always has to be truthful. Vitally important, the United States never get into the business of telling anything but the truth to its own people. We're not going to run information operations to our own people. But there are lots of ways of saying things that are true. And we do need to think more about how the things that we are said are going to be read beyond our shores in Taiwan, in Beijing, in other regional capitals, in Moscow, and understand that our adversaries are engaged in a cognitive messaging campaign, and we have to play it back on them in a way that advances our interests. 
I'm just smiling and I'm sorry. Certain things that we cannot do, like say that we're going to destroy TSMC before the Chinese get it, which nobody at DOD did, but fortunately we have said publicly, that plays exactly into the Chinese hands because what we're basically saying is that we don't care about Taiwan. All we care about is semiconductors. By the way, that gives China information operators a message for the next couple of years. They don't care about you. They're trying to get into a war so they can save their own semiconductors, right? But I will say one thing on this, and, and I think this this is true in the South China Sea, this is true in the Pacific Islands. We're eventually going to have to help Taiwan enforce its maritime rights, you know, and it seems so basic and straightforward. You know, we it took a long time in the South China Sea to go beyond FONOPS and so, you're helping Filipino fishermen and Vietnamese fishermen get to where they're lawfully. And again, the messaging behind this has to be very prominent, which is with the Chinese, because of what we said in our paper, who are always going to paint us as provocateurs, in order for us to build a coalition, the messaging always has to be more in sorrow than in anger. You know, we're so sorry, you know, but now that the Chinese have done this, we have to do X to return to the status quo. You have threatened the Speaker of our House. You know, out of an abundance of caution, we're going to have to land a whole bunch of F-35s next time we take the Speaker into, into Taiwan and protect that Speaker. It's not because we're trying to be provocative. It's because we have a Taiwan Relations Act. That's the status quo. That's how you deal with China's coercion. And you do it very sort of matter of fact, not in anger, always pointing out that they're the provocateur. You're maintaining the status quo. But since they are going about eroding the basic sovereignty of of Taiwan, we're eventually going to have to help Taiwan enforce its maritime territories and maybe even it's in airspace and other places because this can't go on for the next five years. It won't be a Taiwan. Yeah, it can go on, but China's going to... Right. This can't go on with Taiwan as an autonomous... Right. Now, Fred and Dan, it sounds like kind of what you're saying is that the U.S. messaging its current construct is actually emboldening adversary countries like Russia and China and Iran because we're being too legalistic and we're not actually being more upfront about the aggression. Is that true? Let me just say quickly on China. So looking at this time, I understand why we're doing it for for confidence building measures. That's what we do. We're Americans. We have a certain construct about how these things are supposed to go. But if you read the Chinese strategic documents carefully, they are purposely pushing the envelope as a strategy. They want to create more danger and more accidents. They don't want to get into crisis and confidence building measures with us. That's not their strategic objective. They want to show us that it's dangerous to operate where we're used to operating. So the answer to that is to keep doing what we're doing, you know, calmly. But yes, absolutely showering the information space with not they're behaving unprofessionally, but as Fred said, they're behaving provocatively. They're changing the status quo. They are acting in ways that that we think they want to create a crisis. They want to create an accident. Chinese use crises to advance their strategic interests. Sure. Now, would it help to work with our partners like the Philippines and Thailand and Cambodia to help them secure their sea lanes and their fisheries as a demonstration to Taiwan that, yes, we are a viable partner and that we do care and we are going to take steps to make sure that you are protected, your sovereignty is protected. Is that the kind of 
multinational approach that we need to take. Yeah, absolutely. But we're going to have to do direct things with respect to Taiwan, too, because the Taiwan body politic and political leadership is very used to us doing things with allies and partners and not doing them with Taiwan, right? So the short answer is absolutely. I mean, you know, we cannot be in the region and have a relationship with the Philippines and with Vietnam if we don't do the things that you point out and don't help them maintain their maritime rights and territories and so forth. It's necessary, but but we need also to, to take more risks with respect to our policy bilaterally with Taiwan. Right. Now, quick comment. I've been pulled up to New York a couple times to talk to how to break that perception that they are isolated, that China is the looming partner of the future. And one thing that I brought up is that Taiwan and its leadership needs to go where China is not. Go speak at OECD about better economic trade and policies. Go to NATO and talk about integrated defense. Go to all the places that China doesn't have access to shut them down and show themselves as a multinational or international partner. Have you guys seen any of that type of interaction as well? As you know, they are uh, an international player. They're just very quiet about it, right? I mean, the Foxconn and TSMC and UMC are absolutely international players. One thing that our project will take a look at is actually a little bit of an adjustment to your question, which is how do you get you know, a coalition, including the Europeans, who are more willing than they used to be to do things on Taiwan, to do simple things like invite Taiwan to have member or observer status in some of these economic organizations, you know, to do more when it comes to the health assembly, to do more when it comes to certain trade measures. You know, all these things are not provocative. They're well within you know, international legal rights with respect to, to Taiwan. And we just need the Europeans to take a few more risks politically to include Taiwan and break its isolation. I think it's very important to say that anything that we do, Chinese will label as aggression, a provocation, a violation of our agreements, and so forth. It's not. It's not an act of aggression for us to do this. It's not a provocation. It's not anything. It's normal. And we really have to work with our European and other Asian partners to get much more comfortable to telling the Chinese, no, I'm sorry, you don't get to define anything you don't like as a provocation or a violation of something. Right. Hey, Marie, you want to jump to the next question? Or? We've reached our a little bit over our hour, and we still had a handful of questions left. What I will do is I will get all these questions over to you. Anyone in the chat that you specifically want to engage, email me, and I'll help make those connections. So I'd like to say to Fred and Dan, thank you so much for your time. I highly recommend that article. It was posted in the chat, and we'll also make sure that it's on the webpage. Jack, so glad we got your mic working. Thank also you. bring up that Dan and Fred have weekly updates on China. Yeah, those are they're, they're great quick I think it's one of the links that I posted. Yes. I'm going to go ahead and copy those right now and repost them for everyone who may have joined us a little bit late. There's these um, those links right there. Okay. Everyone, thanks. Fred, Dan, thank you. Jack, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Everyone have a great day. Thanks for listening. If you get a chance, please like and subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. Also, if you're interested in coming on the show or hosting an episode, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com. And thank you again to LC38 Brand for offering 10% off to our listeners. We've been nominated for the People's Choice Awards, and this is a little extra treat for those who made it happen. 
Again, the code is 1CA10 and the site is lc38brand.com. And now, most importantly, to those currently out in the field, working with a partner nation's people or leadership to forward U.S. relations, thank you all for what you're doing. This is Jack, your host. Stay tuned for more great episodes, 1CA Podcast.